Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Raziel and I'm the host of the show where I get to have conversations with Olympic athletes, hopefuls, and legends on their story and path of the games. Today, I have John Fish of U.S. Rowing 1988 Olympian. This is the first of two parts. John and I had so much fun, we decided to break it up into two interviews. So the first part is on his rowing career, where he started, how he started, what exactly is rowing and how do you do it? A lot of this fun stuff and getting into him getting into the games, not realizing that as a walk-on in, at UPenn that he could make it to the Olympics and possibly multiple Olympic games, which was pretty cool. So John ended up going to the 1988 games, but had a good shot at a couple more. And it was very, very incredible getting to hear about his story, what he did, how he got there, and everything around it. So I really hope you enjoy the first part of the interview with John Fish. All right. Today's special Yes, John Fish of U.S. Rowing, 1988 Olympian. John was born June 22nd, 1962, in or on Long Island, New York. We're still curious about that. Started rowing his freshman year at the University of Pennsylvania as a walk-on. Went to win multiple international medals as a five-time national champ, seven-time national team coxswain. That's a funny one. We'll get to that. Went to the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, South Korea had a much further involvement with the USOPC, um, now the USOPC, and, and again, that's, that's going to be a huge part of the conversation, and currently is an assistant professor of media studies at NYU, John. And John's a little sick, too, so we really appreciate him being a trooper. Actually, we're both kind of on, uh, on the day-to-day right now, but John, really appreciate you hanging out with me today. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's great to talk with you. It should be it should be a lot of fun, John. I'm very excited. So um, let's just start. I mean, not too many. Uh, you don't find too many rowers from. I know Long Island isn't quite New York City, but you don't find too many rowers from the big city. Uh, I guess tell us what it was like growing up in and or on Long Island. Well, I grew up in a place where rowing wasn't a sport. It was uh, fairly usual where I was. I was in little league baseball and little league basketball and quite frankly, wasn't very good. And one of the things was my size. I was a very late bloomer, and the size is one of the things that allowed me over time to eventually uh, become a, you know, an excellent coxswain and an Olympian. That is incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just such a cool story that you have, uh, considering you didn't start rowing until your freshman year um, of college, so it's 18 or 19 years old, and then only a few years later, you're in the Olympics. I mean, that is, that is a gigantic jump, uh, which I definitely am very curious about. So I guess, what was it that drew you to rowing? Like, why all of a sudden did you think, you know, hey, I'm, I'm at this new school in a new city, like, I should probably try this, uh, you know, this rowing thing out and see if it, uh, see if it works out for me? Well, it was pure serendipity. I had been at a a, an event on Long Island. This was on Long Island. Very nice. Say. Thank you. And uh, it was for people who had gotten in uh, early to Penn. And there were a lot of people there. Some of them were athletes. And I ran into an assistant athletic director and she said to me, you're small. You should think about being a coxswain. Now, one of the advantages I had was I grew until I was 25. So I was smaller when I got to college than I was when I eventually competed in the Olympics. And weight loss was a considerable uh, part of what, what I had to do later to make the international weight. But I wrote to the rowing coach 
and Ted Nash, who became uh, one of my coaches in the Olympics and on many national teams, started writing to me by snail mail and sending me a lot of in information. And I just got interested and I showed up. And interestingly enough, there were six experienced coxswains, plus a lot of other walk-ons. There were a large amount of experienced rowers, and they go around and looking for tall people to join the team. So uh, it was tall people and small people, and as I'm sure we'll talk about, many of the people were you know, up to a, or more than a foot taller than me at the time and twice my weight. So uh, the leadership skills required when you're around a lot of athletes who are uh, bohemians and being a small person uh, is a lot of what uh, distinguishes someone who could be successful or not in the long run. Yeah, especially within that position of coxswain. Um, it's, it's very unique to the sport of rowing, as you said, most of the most rowers that I've ever met, which, you know, I've done a little bit of work with US rowing. So I've met a few and yes, they are, they're big people, tall people, um, long limbs, very long limbs. And, you know, so it's, it's very interesting. If you don't mind uh, giving the audience a little bit of an understanding of what exactly is a coxswain and why are you, you know, for lack of a better term, so much different body type wise than the rest of the rowers in the boat? Right. Well, there's a couple of different uh, parts that make one a good coxswain. There's certainly, there's specific tasks that you have to perform and you have to be good at that and you have to focus on those tasks. That is steering the boat, implementing the race plan, communicating to the rowers in a truthful way where they are in the race, uh, doing the things that a coach might do uh, when they're not with the crew and while you're in a race and letting them know where they are on the race course because the coxswain is the person who's looking forward and the rowers are going backwards. And mm -hmm. so it, that, it, you know, some people say a coxswain is like a jockey. Some people say a quarterback. In the task part of it, it is very much like being a punter. You have a specific job to do. And you got to go in there and do it. You're not going to get any credit for doing it great, generally speaking. But if you do those things like steer badly, you are going to get a lot of blame. So you have to focus on that. And I was fortunate that uh, Ted and many other coaches I had actually focused on coaching coxswains. So, uh, okay, focus on your point. Know where you got to steer to so you can get better at that. Um, then there is the temperament part of it. Uh, which I think is something that I was very good at. You need to be a person who takes action and can make decisions. Uh, I always had a voice that I was able to uh, use, and I had been president of my class for three of my four years in high school, and those two, very involved in a lot of activities, was a vocal person, and I knew how to express myself in a clear way. Uh, I also knew that I wasn't always heard, and I recognized that you can't get everybody to do everything that you want at every moment. So that means sometimes be quiet, and that means sometimes have patience that over the long term you can achieve the results that you want. And then, of course, in terms of practice and work, there are so many details in rowing. It's a very thin boat, and the balance is so critical and every oar has to be 
together, otherwise the boat is going to tip. And then, you know, you're going against wind and you're going against water and currents and waves and all of these things that throw you off kilter. So the coxswain has to be someone who is in fact, uh, keeps things calm when things may not be calm around you. And then I think there is, you know, the leadership and that's listening to what the rowers have to say, being attentive to uh, what's going on, where people have to be, making sure they show up, having a certain amount of empathy, empathy for them and um, knowing like a psychologist, what is going to penetrate their psychological depths that's going to get them to reach their maximum performance. And it sounds like a lot of these things, um, outside of the stature part of it, um, really do, I'm excited to hear how a lot of these things have translated from the, the athletic side of your career to the professional side of your career when we get there a little bit later on. And I mean, really during it, as I said before, um, you're very involved with the USOC, you know, now the USOPC and a lot of the things that, you know, they do on their side, which again, we'll get to, but it's just very interesting. Um, you know, kind of how that story works and what you've been able to accomplish um, on the athletic side and then be able to, as I said, kind of transition that over to the business side, the professional side, and really be able to take advantage of some of those things that you, you, you found that you're very good at. Um, as you said, so you were a class president for three years. I mean, a lot of these things, did you know you were, you know, a little more adept at them than, you know, maybe the next guy or, or how much of this did you actually learn while on the well, I would say I didn't know I was adept at them. I just was adept at them. It nice. was, okay. I, yep. I had, uh, I had these skills and I just transferred them to another medium and being able to have a vision for what needed to be able to do, be done, being able to listen to the rowers and the coaches and learn. And I think we'll get to this later. I am a lifelong learner and I'm curious and I've always been that way. So to get into something that I haven't done before yet instantly was fun. You're around the team. You're with a lot of other people. You are in it together, which is always a very important part of the types of things I've been involved in. And I love working hard. So it, it, sometimes people ask me, so what advice do you give to uh, someone who's getting into a career or the business world? And one of those things is you show up, you do what's asked, and then you step forward to do other things. And that is a natural part of what I did. I think something that I learned from rowing that has really translated was the idea that practice is really important. I think when I was younger, I used to do things that I was good at naturally and then work really hard to be better or the best. By being involved in rowing, the connection between practicing and effort and outcomes became very clear. And I was able to translate that both on the water and later on to having successes in things that either interested me or that were important to me. And, and with rowing, a lot of people don't know is, is the, um, 
the advancements, I guess, for lack of a better term, are very incremental, right? We're working with hundredths of a second. We're working with tenths of a second. Um, so it might be very difficult for somebody either new to the sport, kind of like yourself or, or somebody from the outside to see those small, small, little, tiny ways of getting better every single day really do add up over time. And it is something that you have to really take your time at and really put the energy, the effort and get very good at it. Um, because there's so many little tiny technical things, as you said before, there's so many different things going on at once, especially in these bigger boats with multiple people, fours and eights, that you know, having these small things happen occurring over time and getting better at them over time is really what's the only way to get very, very good at, at, at such a um, you know, specific sport. Right. It, it's a very hard thing for some sports that might have dozens of games or matches in the course of the year, whereas in rowing, you really don't have that. So what you're talking about uh, to your incremental point is hundreds of hours and thousands of miles for each minute of racing. And that means that while you're putting in that effort, you're trying to become technically proficient, you're trying to build up your physical strength and endurance, something that is really important about rowing. It is one of the sports for the rowers where uh, you have to build up your pain tolerance. And from a point of view of physiology, you build up lots of lactic acid. And if you're able to raise your anaerobic threshold to the point that you can endure more of that pain from anaerobic or get there later in the race, then you will be able to go farther, further, faster, and avoid the exhaustion that comes from just not being able to get enough oxygen into your body. And that, that's a very technical approach of looking at it, but essentially, you know, build up that pain tolerance and, and you'll be able to do a lot more. I think that that's very important and a good thing to understand, especially with such a, um, again, with, with such a, um, I, as you specific before, but the sport is so unlike other sports, you know, it's so, it's so very unique to itself that I think it is, it's, it's very interesting. Um, you know, it's always, it's always, it's always, interesting to watch. I will hand up, John. I'm sorry. It is not my favorite sport to watch. I will be very honest. I've been to many, many events and it, it is, it is cool. The atmosphere is a lot of fun and the people are very interesting. The athletes themselves are what interests me the most because I think their stories and what they go through and the grueling nature of the sport, as we've been talking about is really, um, admirable, uh, from my standpoint, considering, as I said, I'm in a little bit of pain right now. Um, and I'm a wimp. I can only imagine what rowers go through just on a daily basis before the hours of 10 o'clock in the morning uh, that, that make them much, much stronger people than I. One of the things, you know, that they, people always talk about the early morning and someone says, oh, I wanted to try rowing or someone asked me to go out for rowing, but I didn't want to get up at 530 in the morning. And that took a, a lot of adjustment to be able to do that. At the same time, I prepared and did that right away. And, you know, school can be difficult. Uh, living away from home, I was happy to be doing that, but there's lots of adjustments. And then what happened was many of the people who had been training for the national teams, Philadelphia is very much a, an elite rowing center, 
uh, were looking for coxswains and they would just, they'd need people in the morning because there weren't a lot of elite coxswains training around at any given time. And they would ask me, and quite frankly, I couldn't say no to those guys. It's and gotta I, be hard, yeah. And I got, uh, so here it was, I was training with my college team, but early on I was not uh, training in, uh, you know, I, I was trying to work my way up in to be good and be accepted and build up the skills, and but they still needed people for practice. So I built up relationships with many of these rowers, some who had been on national teams before 1980 and before, some who had been on uh, the 1980 Olympic team that had boycotted the Moscow Olympics as a result of President Carter's action and therefore had this unbelievable burning desire to make the national team. And I was fortunate enough to be able to train with those people while I was learning. And that was really a lucky part for me. That's, I mean, it's not luck because you put yourself there, right? I'm not, I, I don't believe in luck personally. Um, you know, obviously you were the one that got up, you were the one that put in the work. And when they came to you and said, hey, we need help, you said yes. So I would not consider that luck. Um, I would consider that doing, being in the right place at the right time, but you, you're there because you're putting in that work, you're putting in that effort, you're putting in that energy, and they saw that, uh, which I think is is really cool. And um, yeah, I mean, so your, your rowing career, just, just completely, um, you know, just being able to do what you did in such a short time is so cool with especially so so this was this is an interesting question that you actually brought up to me before we started with being, you know, being tech, a technical leader, in, in a sense of the boat at the time, what was it like, then getting into the boat with, you know, just these athletes that are significantly bigger than you, but now even getting into the boat with some of the best rowers, essentially on planet Earth, and you having to tell them what to do after only being in this situation for a few short, you know, days, weeks, months at this point. I, I, it, it was a lot of fun and it could be intense. I have been, I mean, and maybe that's one of the temperament things that I had. I've been able to stare down uh, people and, and look people in the eye. Uh, and while you can't see many people's eyes, you know, if someone's going to go at me, I'm going to be direct. And that may not mean I'm going to go back at them with uh, shouting, but I can take it and then continue to do my job in an effective way. So uh, sometimes that was a learning opportunity. Sometimes that was a difficult challenge. But at the end of the day, I was able to overcome that and use that as an opportunity to build relationships and, you know, hopefully build a better team that I did over, I think, over a long period of time. So it can be difficult. And then at some point, you don't notice the size. And I, I, I made a friend who had been a fencer, but was like some rowers, six foot eight, and at some point, this was later on when I was living in LA for a little while, uh, he said, the reason I like hanging out with you is because you don't notice that I'm six foot eight. Uh. And that, that, I think that comes with part of this. Having been a late bloomer, I was always smaller than most people. And therefore, I had to find a way to participate and lead and be involved despite being much smaller than other people. 
Let's start out. Six foot eight is also just very tall. Um, let's 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 start there. But no, you, you make a good point, and really just being able to look past that and just treat everybody as just a human being, but the, outside of their stature or their size, is always very important. And, and clearly, that's been something that you've been able to do. And as we've already talked about, that's been able to transition uh, you into being able to work with elite athletes at, at, at such a young time in your career um, and move forward with that. So I do kind of want to get to that aspect of it a little bit more with the 88 Olympics. So in, in 80, you already said, you know, 80, if I'm not mistaken, was right around the time that you started school, right? My math kind of works out. Yes. Um, so right around 80. So you're, you're starting the sport in 80, 81 ish. How long did it take you to realize that the Olympics weren't a dream, but it was a potential reality? Uh, so it was pretty quick. It was within probably a year or two. So wow. there, there was the at the end of my freshman year. So during my freshman year, by uh, after the third race and before the Eastern Sprints Championships, I I, I had made it into. Uh, the first freshman boat at the time they used to have freshman boats and then we won the sprints so that was great and I the way rowing works in college is you bet shirts and so if you lose you have to give up your shirt if you win you get the shirt so this is a race with 16 or 18 crews in it you're racing in heats and other things and all of a sudden they all have to give you their shirts and the coxswain gets thrown in as is tradition along with the shirts and so that got me in a place where what would be under 23s now or pre-elite i was being considered in those areas and and went to some of those camps and then at some point some of those people i talked about had uh they were training for something which was an event put on by the USOC at the time called the US Olympic Festival. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to go and we went to the trials which were up in Hanover, New Hampshire. And we raced in the trials and uh, I was with most of the people had been on national teams or the 80 Olympic teams. So I'm with a group of great athletes who are accepting me. And after the race, uh, they said, I said to them, so who are you going to take to the Olympic Festival as your coxswain? I thought they were just using me for the trials. And they looked at me and said, you, you idiot, you won the trials. <laughs> and so I got to go to that and be with elite athletes at the same time uh, after having gone to the pre-elite camp. The same thing happened the next year. And then I came back and went to Philadelphia and started training with some of the elite rowers in Philadelphia and joined in the Cox pair and went to my first world championships in 1982 and raced there and came in sixth. So, uh, so from 80 fall of 80 starting to summer of 82, I had moved into and competed in the world championships. That is incredible. I mean, like that, that's, that's not how it usually works. I don't care what the sport is, but that, that is not how it works. It doesn't take 18 months to, compete in, you know, at the highest level uh, of, you know, any sport, but, um, you know, kudos to you. And clearly again, you know, obviously again, with, with being a coxswain, a lot of it is, is taking control and doing what you have to do. Um, and clearly you were able to do that at such a good level, right from the start, as you said, you didn't know that you, you uh, had these attributes and these skills or they were there. You just, I guess, didn't know that they were there, if that makes sense. Um, and then once you kind of found them, you've been able to, you were able to exploit them and execute it at such a high level that, you know, these elite athletes are saying, Hey, John, you know, no, 
we're not just using you for this. We're, we're going to ride this thing um, uh, to the end with you, which I think is incredible. So that this is 82, um, 84. So if you were already at this level, what, um, why was the 88 Olympics your first one? It sounds like 84. Uh, you should have had a pretty darn good shot at making those games too, right? I, I, yes, it is true. And it's a great disappointment that uh, did not win the trials. Uh, so did not make the Olympic teams in the Olympic games in the United States. So that was uh, a, a really great disappointment that took a lot to be able to overcome. And, you know, one thing that's really important, I've talked about kind of the skills of a coxswain, the, however it works, I mean, the rowers are pulling the oar, the rowers are feeling the pain, the rowers are putting in the training. So whatever success I have, I owe to just a great group of athletes that I had the ability to train with and who either selected me or I was selected by coaches. So that is, you know, th that is something uh, as the coxswain, I, I want to recognize uh, how much, uh, while I am an important part of the team, I have a specific role in the team that can make the team excel, and I can help it to excel, but I am very reliant on a great group of people working together, and whatever I can do to add, I, you know, that was always what I wanted to do. Yeah, and that makes sense. Kind of sounds like you're the cherry on top. Um, if you're there and you do a great job, People notice you, but it's not the end-all be-all. Um, and it sounds like if you're there and you and you do a poor job, uh, it can kind of take the whole thing down. So it sounds like you're pretty darn good to the point where at least, you know, being a very vibrant, delicious cherry on top of that Sunday is, is very important. And I think it sounds like you, you were able to do that. Unfortunate that you were not able to make the 84 games. But uh, as we know, you, you went on and you did at least make the 88 games, which is incredible in itself. Um, so I do want to talk about that a little bit. I know, uh, you know, from your from the notes that you sent over, and again, I appreciate that. It makes my life a heck of a lot easier. You were actually in England for a little while at Oxford. Um, while was that was this while you were training for the games, or was this um, just in the time before the games? Explain. I mean, a you went to Oxford, so hand up, congratulations. That's incredible. Um, very well deserved. What was that like being in a country where? at least from my understanding, rowing is a little bit more of a, um, uh, how do I want to say this? It's a little bit more accessible. More people do it. It's, it's, it's paid attention to a little bit more in England than it is here in the United States. So was that helpful at all when you were over there and, and still trying to train and do, do the things you needed to do? Well, it, I, when I graduated from college, after the disappointment of 84, I had, uh, had a job set with Ernst & Young and so I went to join them and I worked there and it's, uh, I was working in New York. There were some abilities to train there. And then I also was able at the time they had something called comp time where you could work a ton in the winter. And then I was able to take off and go training. And I had decided that I wanted to do that. So I went to the national team training in 1985 and did that and ultimately competed in the world championships in the lightweight eight where we won a silver medal. Uh, 86, I did the same thing and then applied to Oxford. And like you say, it's, it's much more accessible in England. There are a 
you know, more than a thousand men and women who participate in what would be known as uh, intramurals here, but the bumps race is there where you're competing and trying to knock into the other people. And uh, that, that, you know, was an opportunity for recognition in a different way. Uh, I don't know that it was perfect for my training to be out of this country, but I was able to manage my studies and my training in a way that I could spend enough time in the United States able to compete in the world championships in 87 and then also make the team in 88. So uh, it was a great experience, uh, a very different type of academics at Oxford than uh, my undergraduate at Wharton where you're really studying, you know, I, I find, I'm taking finance, accounting, I'm taking a lot of exams, doing well on those, but uh, at Oxford, from an academic point of view, you're doing two eight to 10 pages uh, papers a week. They're being, uh, you're sitting with your tutor, reading them, so you don't have that same opportunity to study and do well on a test, and you have to talk to this person, and if there's BS, they're coming right back at you. So I think uh, both studying a different subject, which was your politics, economics, and sociology, and being as part of that, you know, rowing environment that was very celebratory, but also very hard, uh, enabled me, you know, both in life and rowing to ultimately succeed where I wanted to. But, uh, you know, I don't know it was ideal for 88, but I had to be in a place where I can continue to train. And there were certainly a lot of great rowers and many Americans there as well. Yeah, and that, that's definitely helpful. And, and again, especially from, from what you're doing as a coxswain, as we've already been able to talk about, it's, you know, you have to develop that chemistry with the team. You have to be with the team. That's, that's a lot of the training, I, I assume. But really being able to talk things out with your tutor, as you said, at Oxford, and being able to do these other things and kind of work your brain a little bit different than your, your time at Wharton. How did you, did, do you think that that helped with your ability in the boat as well, just being able to talk through more of these things. Obviously, you've been pretty darn good at what you've been doing this whole time, made it to Olympic trials, silver medal and world championships. But do you think that that helped at all, just the kind of the working your brain, I guess, in, for lack of a better term, in a different way to be able to connect with more of these athletes and be able to articulate and do what you need to do within the boat? Well, I think it was, you know, other than competing at the world championships, it was uh, it became a very immersive and international experience. So I've always thought of myself as someone who's a teaching coxswain, a coaching coxswain, and the style was very different there in that you had multiple coaches who would take a period of time. So that meant I got to learn from multiple coaches, one of whom ended up becoming the coach for my boat uh, at the Olympic Games after we won the trials. So they, they, I, I'm learning a lot about different aspects of technique, different aspects of training. And one of the things that was going on in the United States at the time is as the Cold War was starting to change uh, and things were opening up, the more systematic coaching approach that uh, was being used in the Eastern Bloc before then was then spreading to Western countries, both Great Britain and in the United States. And at that time, by 1984, the national team coach was a uh, Polish trained 
athlete and coach who ended up coaching in other countries as well. And the training was much more systematic. So the combination of being in another country and training, being with athletes, really, I, I think it benefited me in the long run towards that. Yeah, absolutely. Seeing seeing different styles and being able to kind of cherry pick the things that worked for you best or what you liked best, um, I think is always important. You know, it's kind of like talking about kids doing one sport growing up. You know, you want to play basketball. Well, don't just play basketball, play football, play baseball. You use different parts of your body. You think of things differently and, and you, you see, I mean, there's so many examples of people that, you know, if you play multiple sports as a kid, there's a better chance you'll be really, really good at one of them than if you just kind of continue to crush certain aspects of again just going back to basketball and then finding out you know there's so many other things that you could have done at a younger age that could have translated so it, it's it, you know a similar analogy that I think you know obviously again it worked you know you made the games you did everything you, you've won some incredible um, events you've done some incredible things so I do want to now talk about the 88 games um, I know you got to walk in opening ceremonies which is absolutely incredible and it's there's one thing I could do around the Olympics. Every single person that's been there has said, just make sure you walk in the opening ceremonies. Right. There's nothing else like it. So, I mean, tell us about your experience there, opening ceremonies, competition, um, just the, the atmosphere uh, of being at, you know, the, the biggest sporting event once every four years, uh, you know, that, you know, now, what is it? 5 billion people watch the Rio games. We're assuming something close to that in Tokyo. So, I mean, tell us about just the experience at the Olympics because it's, Something that well, I love hearing about. I, I think there's two aspects of that kind of focus of the world. One is that the world is has its eyes trained on the Olympics in a way that, especially from sports like rowing, but you know, a few other things you get at that at that level. And then the second part is really what makes it unique uh, from the point of a participant is that you are really around a group of people, 10,000 athletes, who are at the peak of their life. Whether or not somebody wins or not, these are people who are sharing a peak experience and you're there to compete and hopefully we can do the best we can. Uh, you know, we'll go into the competition in a little bit, but that, in an, that was disappointing. The opening ceremonies is a crazy, crazy you know experience and because i had competed in the world championships over many years so i knew athletes from other countries because i had trained and studied in england i knew people from other countries so it wasn't just you know sharing this experience with athletes from the united states rowing team it was athletes from around the world and then there's the other part of it is where you're sharing it with other U.S. athletes from other sports that you have you uh, may not have met before then, and you make lifelong friends from that, from sharing that peak experience with a lot of different people, and that's really uh, that, that's really exciting. And there's this element, rowing is fortunate in that the competition is in the first week. And so on the one hand, if you don't do as you're expecting uh, and hoping for, it's disappointing. On the other hand, there's a lot of events and parties and sponsor things and just athlete parties that you could participate, which is just a great time. And I had my parents were there. One of my brothers were there. So we, we just had a really, really amazing time and enjoyed that part of it a lot. That's, that's also what I've heard is, is the, the athletes, you know, the, the, the worst is if you have the event, if your event is the day after opening ceremonies, because most, most times you can't actually go. 
Um, but it sounds like there was enough time that you were able to go to opening ceremonies. I hear the walk is, is incredibly long in certain situations, um, but just the energy of the crowd, but also the energy that you can feel from your, the, your USA teammates, from your rowing teammates, and just from the rowing world. As you said, you, you know most of these athletes at this point. You're at the highest of high levels. You've been to multiple world championships. Um, being with these athletes that you spend so much time with, even if they're from other countries, there's still that mutual bond of the sport. And then, as you said, when you're with your Team USA athletes, there's the mutual bond of, hey, we're, we're on the same team. We're representing the same country, wearing the same colors, the same uniform in most aspects. And that just has to be something that is, is unmatched um, in, in most situations. And, and, you know, congratulations, if I haven't already said it, for being able to. And, and thank you for representing the United States, because I think it's one of the biggest honors in all of sports. You know, we just had the Super Bowl a couple days ago, last week, whatever it was. Um, and just just to understand that the Olympics is so much bigger than, you know, the biggest sporting event every year. It is, it is so cool to be able to see. And, and for me to talk to athletes like yourself that have been it, that have done it, they've been there and, and competed and represented it. And I think more importantly, um, it is unfortunate that you didn't win gold, obviously, but as you said, you're, you're at the peak of your life. Essentially there's, I, I think the, the media narrative of the medals is, understandable from a media aspect i personally hate it i think you know if you're one of the best 10 athletes in the world at something that's incredible who cares if you're top three obviously everyone wants to be number one but if you're top 10 at something you should absolutely celebrate that because if i could be top you know 10,000 at something i'd be extremely excited considering you know you were one of the best athletes in the world at something at that time i think it is just so so cool so uh, if you don't mind, I guess, I know you said it was very disappointing, but do you mind telling us a little bit about the, the experience of actually being on the water and, and um, having, you know, all, you know, unfortunate things happen, but at the same time, being there and, and competing at the games? Right. So I was in an event, the Cox Pair, which is no longer Olympic event. It's two rowers and a coxswain. And uh, we were doing really well. We were crushing our times. We were looking great. And then one of the guys in my boat got sick and we were deciding whether to put in a spare, but there was just such a great chemistry between the rowers uh, and we had a great boat that we thought we'd take that risk. And then, well, we had made it into the semifinals and uh, then during the semifinals, we started off okay, and then uh, just the illness got to the person. So uh, that was, you know, it was crushing because uh, we didn't really get a chance to do what we were able to do, and that uh, you know, you don't get many chances to do that. Nope. And no, you're there, you want to go for it, you know. And I do want to say, I know hundreds through my work with the US OPC over the years, uh, hundreds of medalists, and they deserve all the recognition that they get. And it is really amazing experience to have been around so many of these people and how the United States athletes and athletes throughout the world are recognized for their accomplishments. And part of that is some people can make it happen year after year, Olympics after Olympics, uh, in many cases, everything has to go right, and 
that's how the dark horse wins or that's how someone goes from being a contender to being a champion. Uh, you can control many things, but you can't control everything. And it's even more impressive when you have these people who are uh, world champion and Olympic champion time after time, because there's so many things that can go wrong beyond your control. And the fact that they're able to do that is really, like you said, there's no such thing as luck. It's really just an amazing, amazing accomplishment. And as I hang out with friends and see these people, I really salute them. And, you know, part of what I wanted to do as an athlete rep on the Olympic Committee is ensure that people had their best chance to be successful in every way, whether that meant having the resources they needed, whether they were focused and the governance was focused on high performance or other things. So it's, it, it isn't, it, it is, it's insurmountable in certain situations. All the things, as you said, that need to go right for someone to win a gold medal um, is, is it's, it's insane. I mean, like the list is so long, so many stars have to align. You can be the best at something and something like illness or injury can come in. You know, I've spoken with so many athletes. I've done a 120, 150 of these interviews at this point. And so many athletes, We'll have, you know, great opportunity after great opportunity. And it's just the injury bug hits at the wrong time. You get sick at the just absolute wrong time. Someone had an appendectomy. I think of the 2018 Olympic Games, uh, one of our bobsled teams. Someone had to have an appendectomy, like, right before the Games. Of course, you're not going to be at your, your, your best. But at the same time, those four years, that's the thing about the Olympics, which makes it more incredible. It's once every four years. It's not like this happens every year. I mean, there's the world championship. So I know that the competition is there, but from a, from a uh, party standpoint, from a, uh, you know, celebration standpoint, it's once every four years for these sports. And if something goes wrong two weeks before the game, one week before the game, during the games, um, it's extremely unfortunate. But as you said, that's what allows these dark horses to win. That's what allows these other interesting storylines to creep in and, 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 and join the, uh, join the conversation a little bit. So it is, it's unfortunate um, that your teammate did get sick. But um, that's just the way it goes sometimes. And it, it, it is what it is. And, and again, we still appreciate you. And of course, we appreciate all the medal winners. It's incredible. You win top three at something that's even more impressive than top 10. But at the same time, I like celebrating all the athletes for all their accomplishments and everything that they've done, because I sure as heck, I'm not going to be able to do it. So, um, you know, again, we, we appreciate what you've done, John. So thank you for that. Thank you. No, absolutely. So, so that was the 88 games. I'm sure there's a lot more we can go into there, but your story is, is, is very rich with a lot of different opportunities. Um, so I know in 91, you were still competing. Why not the 92 games? Why didn't you go to three games, John? No, I'm kidding. That's incredible if you went to three, but what, what exactly was going on that um, didn't, was it, did you guys just not win the Olympic trials? What exactly happened? That didn't so I retired after 88 Okay. And then 91, the Pan Am Games were in Cuba. And I thought that would be really cool. We have it, the, the Goodwill Games were in 1986 in Moscow. So 80, the U.S. boycotted the Moscow Olympics. 84, the Eastern Bloc, including Russia, uh, boycotted the LA Olympics. So CNN and Ted Turner and Turner Sports organized these games that was trying to make a much more of a collegial and friendly atmosphere and bring them together before the Olympic Games and to help minimize the possibility of something like that happening again. And that was an amazing experience. And what I know is 
even at the World Championships, 82, 83, 85, because we were supposed to be enemies with the Russians, there was a natural affinity that we had for the Russians. So the ability to go to the Goodwill Games in Moscow and compete against the Russians, and fortunately there were about 11 events. Only one other team ended up winning, but one other event, the U.S., and then the last event, which was the men's eight, which is one of the elite events, we were competing against the Russians who were the world champion. And we, as a surprise, beat them. And it was one of my favorite races of all times. And we had, uh, we had been behind. And at the time, I think the Russians had so much riding on it. And they race not to lose. And we were racing because we wanted to see how fast we can go and to win. And we got to the thousand meter mark and we were taking a move and we started moving rapidly. And then uh, the stroke of the boat, uh, Andy Suddeth, who's uh, tragically passed away, he said another one. So, you know, we're communicating. We did another move. It wasn't planned. And we just literally broke them. And then we just kept going and they, to some extent, gave up. And uh, there was this element of beating the Russians during the Cold War uh, and who were the world champions and then hearing the national anthem in Moscow with the U.S. flag going up, that was kind of an amazing experience. That's incredible. And, and then I wanted to uh, go for that uh, again uh, in Cuba, and my club was training, and uh, you know, I got selected for the boat, the Penn Athletic Club in Philadelphia, which has been very, you know, a grateful you know, place for me to train with so many great athletes. And then we won the trials for the four and we competed in that. We came in second to the Cubans, but once again, got to see the American flag in Havana. And it was a, a great experience to be there. 92, I don't think I put the commitment in. I was working, I was doing other things. And then I did end up going to the trials, but uh, we we didn't win, so mm -hmm. that was too bad. And uh, you know, could have helped my team more if I had lived all year in Philadelphia instead of living in New York and going there is is hard to know. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, I yeah had was on seven national teams over um, a, a, a period from eighty two to 91 i won multiple uh international medals including the world championships silver and bronze medals in the world championships goodwill games gold medal a lot of national championships so you know i think the lesson there that carries forward more than anything is in order to have the great successes there's going to be a lot of disappointments and failures or things that don't work out and how do you learn from those even though they are you're not going to get this chance again and you have to figure out how to channel that into something else. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you, you don't get many opportunities, especially in something like rowing and especially in something like an Olympic sport. Um, and you had three shots and that's incredible in itself. Yeah. Going to the Olympic trials three times in a row, um, is, is amazing in itself. And I think that that's really cool. And yeah, of course it's unfortunate you didn't make it in 84 and 92, but at the same time, you still got the opportunity in 88, um, and you did a lot with it and you had a lot of fun and you had the experience. And I think that's, you know, one of the most important parts. Right. Yes, definitely. Um, 
So I know with you also, we spoke about it a little bit. Um, you had a pretty big involvement with the USOC, now the USOPC. Um, I'm just going to rattle off a couple of these if you don't mind. So I have Athlete Advisory, Board of Directors, Olympic Foundation, Audit Committee, Budget, Commi Budget Committee. You worked on the U.S. Rowing uh, Board of Directors for a certain period of time and Athlete Career Services. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff that you did. Um, and working with the USOPC and working with these athletes, what was it that made you want to give back so much to the, the Olympic community, the USOPC, and the athletes themselves? Well, there's this element, of course, where I got so much out of the sport. And sometimes people think about the giving back. Um, there is that idea, for me, it's, I wanted to make things better for other people. It's not as much as a payback as, you know, let me put in this effort now in another direction. And I got uh, every sport that's in the Olympics or Pan American Games gets an athlete uh, rep on the U.S. Athletes Advisory Council. It was a little different back then than it is now, uh, but that's essentially the same thing that happens. And rowing is a very large sport. And we'll talk a little bit, I think, about equity and how that works, but it was an amazing policy that we had that really enhanced the leadership abilities of rowers is that every four years, the lead athlete rep that was elected would be switched off between a male and a female. So after 88, it was a female athlete rep. After 1992, uh, it was a male athlete rep. So in an interesting way, the fact that I continued to participate in 91 and 92 allowed me to get to know a lot more athletes. And the people who are eligible to vote are the people who competed in the international competition over the last 10 years. So I was really interested in doing this and I, I did it. And uh, the rowers are a great group of people and a large group of people and there's multiple constituents and I got elected and that in and of itself was a great honor. And then when I got on the Athletes Advisory Council, uh, in 90, elected in 92, starting in 93, I got elected as one of the reps uh, to the board of directors. So you're sitting on the policy making body by rule and that gets you involved in the governance. And there were things that I didn't appreciate about how things were being run by rowing or uh, things that could have been better just from how the USOC supported us, even though they did, both organizations did so much, that I had an opportunity really because of my financial and business background and all these years as an auditor and business person that I was able to bring in that experience and use it from the point of view of an athlete rep. And, uh, you know, there's so much and so many reasons why it is a brilliant policy that you have to have at least 20%, I think it's now more, 20% athletes on all boards and all committees, because you end up having what we used to call the blue blazers who run the organization and they may be out of touch. And uh, Anita DeFrance, who I, you know, I, I know you know, uh, she uh, was a trailblazer in so many ways, uh, but continues to be on the International Olympic Committee and was one of our first athlete reps from rowing. Uh, she had come to the AAC, the Athletes Advisory Council, and talked about 
why we need athlete reps and what are the benefits of having someone from what's essentially an underserved community. Anytime I see Anita, I tell her this, she doesn't remember, but I'm still giving her credit for this. And that is, one, you can represent the interests of the group. Like you know those interests better than anyone else. Two, you become a guiding star from people in that group who can then see you as a representative and know that they can do it also. And three, it gives people from underserved or excluded groups an opportunity to demonstrate their leadership excellence as well as develop further leadership skills. And I think I had many of those things and right away was able to contribute and working with so many athletes and administrators and coaches and uh, governance people from so many sports, I just got better and better at it and was able to contribute more and more. So I, I loved it. And then in 96, got elected as vice chair of the Athletes Council, uh, representing you know, all the sports and being one of the leaders and sitting on the executive committee. So it was something that I feel I contributed a lot and in a, a number of different areas, uh, but I also really gained a lot of benefits out of it. Yeah, it sounds like that is, is such an you know, an excellent opportunity. And thankfully, you know, it's, it's interesting kind of how this, you know, if we, we take a couple steps back, you know, if it wasn't for CNN and Ten Turner thinking like, hey, maybe we should do something down in Cuba. Um, you know, a lot of these opportunities might not exactly have happened the way they did for you. So I always kind of like looking back a little bit and seeing how, you know, just that act and that thing happening and you saying, I had such a great time last time when we did something similar to this in Moscow. Let's see what it's like in Havana. Um, you know, a lot of these things then came to kind of kind of came to fruition. I'm sure a lot of these things, I'm sure many of them you would have uh, taken your hand in and, and done done more if you could have. But uh, the opportunities come as they as they do. And I think it is very interesting. And yes, I know Anita. Uh, I actually met her this past December. She is an incredible human being. What, as you said, trailblazer for the sport. Um, but I did not realize how much of a trailblazer she was for just athletes in general. And I totally agree with you. Having athletes on boards, having the people that do and, and compete and, and are in the sport. Um, so often you see people that used to be in the sport or their kids are in the sport or they just love the sport itself and they are a little too far or they're, they're too close to the forest to see the trees. I think that's how the, the, the quote goes. And, and it is always very important to make sure that the people that are there, they should have some sort of voice, right? Like it would be silly to just have, as you call them, the blue blazers, make all the decisions for these sports when they're not even competing. They're, you know, they're kind of sitting on the outside. Yeah, they're paying attention to the business aspect of it, as you alluded to uh, before, but there, there's so much more that can be done by having these athletes involved and really not just getting their input, but them having a vote and them being very important to the fabric of what's going on. So I think, yeah, in that case, you know, kudos to, uh, kudos to Anita for doing that. I had, I had no idea that was, uh, that was one of her, the, one of the uh, trails that she blazed. And, you know, there's this element where that applies to many other areas. And I think because of my involvement with athletes and understanding and working with lots of different people, I think these things apply to many student-led groups. I've been an ally to a number of them in my post-career. And you watch, you give people the opportunity to lead and express themselves, they come up with great ideas and they come up with new and innovative ideas because they have an opportunity. Of course, there's things they need to learn and people go out and uh, 
take off more than they can chew or they try things that fail. But on the other hand, you're able to find many things that become successful. And I think that's a great, you know, part of having those opportunities. And I think we're seeing a lot more of young people, even people in high school now, who are taking advantage of those and making major differences, uh, you know, in, in things that are going on and whatever their passion is that may be different from mine or yours, they're finding ways to express themselves and lead. I, I love it. I mean, you have to, you, you can't lead without trying to lead, right? You don't just get put in the situation that kind of similar to yourself. You didn't realize you had some of these attributes, they were there, but maybe you didn't notice or you had no idea. And then when you're put in that situation, you quickly find out, wait, this is something that not only am I good at, but this is something I want to get better at. And um, you can't just have kids learn about leadership. They actually have to try it, right? Yes, definitely. And uh, you, you, you make a great point um, just with having so many people be involved and, and getting these opportunities now and, and finding out, I mean, in business, you've been in business a very long time and, and uh, we might have to cut this into two parts because I feel like the business part of your life uh, and everything you learned from rowing and used uh, is also another great conversation. I don't want to have to cut that short, but being able to learn on the job, I think is one of the most important parts about business. And, and with that will come failure. As you said, people are going to bite off too much more than they can chew. You kind of have to know you know, you, I'd rather bite off a little too much and realize maybe I need to delegate some of this than not bite off enough and really never know where my, you know, peak excellence is or, you know, never know where I'm, I'm capable of going and what are the things that I'm capable of doing and, and learning how to then deal with those types of failures. So I think it is very interesting. But John, your story is incredible. Um, I, I have had an absolute blast today. I hope you've enjoyed this. And I, I do apologize. I think we're going to have to cut this into two which is fine because I don't want to cut any of it short. There's so many other things with your involvement in the USOPC. You marched in the 94 games as well. I absolutely want to talk about that because you were, you know, as you said, you're an athlete, you were on the board. So you got the opportunity to march twice, once as an athlete, once not. Um, so you look like you want to say something. No, I, I, I've had a blast too. It's been great. And I you Perfect. know look forward to chatting further with yeah. you. I think Hopefully. this is a great opportunity. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, just, just some of the things you have a huge media background, production background, financial planning background, you've worked on TV shows that have won Emmys. I know I just wanted to make that very clear. You unfortunately didn't win the Emmy, but you had a part in it. Um, uh, Row New York is something that I want to talk about as well. I'm sure there's many, many more things that we can discuss. You're a teacher at, um, I'm not record. I went to records. You're a teacher at NYU. So clearly there's a lot of things that are going on. And, and that to me sounds like an entire another episode, which I'm excited for. So John, I sincerely, sincerely appreciate your time today. And I appreciate your time a couple days in the future where we get to do this again. All right, great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode with John Fish, the 1988 Olympian. John was a lot of fun to have on, very charismatic, very outgoing, very easy to understand, and he does a great job of explaining what he did, how he did it, and how he got through it all. So it was really a pleasure to get to speak with him. I then got to speak with him a little while later, and we did the second part of the interview. So be on the lookout. The second one is coming soon. Please make sure to follow John on any of the links that are in the show notes. Please make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all the places. You know where they are. You love them. Uh, and yeah, thank you all so much. Hope you make it a wonderful day.